You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. And so if, you, if you've been around for a little while, you know that we use this phrase, uh, Jubilee exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. So we're taking this opportunity to dive deeper into good news. What does that mean? Spiritual family, what does that mean? Holistic transformation, what does that mean? And I'll take it as an opportunity to give reminders to us, I think, too, as how do we live this out as microchurches? What does this mean for us? And kind of recentering on the point of what we do. And so today is the good news. I'll just start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Paul's writing to uh, really a network of house churches, or you can look at them as microchurches, that are scattered throughout the city of Corinth. And Paul is writing a letter to them as an authority to them, a personal authority to them, to make corrections, to remind them of things, to give them teaching. And he's specifically responding to issues that have come up in this network of churches, okay? Issues that he knows that he's heard about some pretty messy issues, and one of them uh, he's addressing here. Okay, so it means something to us, what it's saying, but he's also, he's also answering a specific problem, a specific theological issue in this case that's happening within this network of churches. So, verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordan- according to the scriptures, that he was bur- buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Yeah, few people like this phrase. I don't know what it says about you. Um, so what we're going to do today is just go by phrase by phrase, okay, through it, and just see what we can find, what Paul might be saying to us. And so now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, and the first word that we're going to talk about is gospel. And so uh, this might be a simple thing. It's a simple idea, but the gospel is the center of what we're doing. Uh, You might know this already, but just as a reminder, the center of what Christianity is, of what the church is, of what Jesus was doing, of what Paul's writing, there's many things that we might call Christianity or do in a church or see. You could take everything else away, and what would still stay is this thing called gospel. When Jesus came, he came preaching a message, mostly. He also did miracles. He also uh, made people angry. He also died on the cross and everything that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But before this, the main purpose that he's doing, the main thing he's doing, is he's preaching what he calls preaching, which we'll talk about, a message. It's not primarily, that means what we're about, is not primarily a philosophy. We're not actually primarily about action. Action is good, so I'm not saying we're not any of these things, but we're not primarily about action. It's not primarily a religion. It's not, and it's, it's simply, it's mostly a message. That's it. It's just news. It's just an announcement, which you could do all of Christianity in just a minute by saying it out loud. It's this simple. 
Like the message of Christianity today is this simple. We'll talk about what the content of the message is. But first, have you heard the message? This is what Paul is going to remind them of. Have you heard the message? Have you then believed? We'll talk about that. Have you believed the message? Have you told anyone else about the message? Do you still believe the message? Is the message changing and transforming your actions? Is it changing and transforming your beliefs? Is it changing and transforming your emotions, your outlook on life, or is it not? Paul's comfortable asking questions like this because this is all that matters to him, is this one message. Mostly, and in the background of the passage, is is it going into your heart? Is the message making its way into your heart? Just to wrap up that idea of what is the gospel, the gospel literally means good news. It's a Greek word called euangelion, which means a good message, a good news. Uh, And it literally means what it sounds like, a positive announcement that's spoken. They mean something very specifically by it. That's why we call it the good news, to emphasize that the message is positive and life-changing. And that is the foundation of what we do. So as an aside, we're not... uh, giving people here or in microchurches or as individuals in the city. We're not giving people a philo- simply a philosophy or a religion or a 10-step program to how to live a better life or anything. Although all those things can be a part of this, what we're doing mostly and simply is giving an announcement of something that's happened. Not, not even a plan for how you're going to change first, but just an announcement of something that's happened in history that's spiritually true and historically true. This, this word then, preach to you, matters a lot. I, I had actually, I don't know that I had ever, it's such a simple thing, but I don't know that I had ever considered it before I was reading this, to even ask what the word preached means. If you remember the word gospel means, it, it, it sounds like something like this in Greek, euangelion. Well, the word preached in Greek is euangelizo, which sounds a lot like it. To preach literally means, although it has a negative connotation usually, it literally means to bring good news. To preach the good news is kind of this thing that always goes together. Real preaching, actual preaching from the Bible is, is announcing good news to somebody. Specifically what Paul means by it, and when it, whenever you see it in the New Testament, what the word preach or preaching means is it's specifically announcing the full message of Jesus. So you can think of it from a negative perspective, like you're preaching at somebody, but to truly preach at somebody is to offer them good news. Preaching means sharing the good news. And I think that we should always stop at this moment because for the places we've, most of us have probably grown up for in our culture, not only is preaching negative, but maybe the word gospel has even taken on kind of a negative connotation. And I don't just mean that the gospel can be um, presented negatively. Maybe you think it's positive still intellectually, but you don't feel that it's good news. You might not experience internally that it really is the best news, the best message possible. For the rest of today, we're going to be talking about the content. Paul's going to talk about the content of the message. What is the message? But first, to to share the good news, I'm trying to get this part, to share the good news, for it to be good news, it has to be the actual content of the message. It has to be the message. But also, and just as importantly, it has to come from a heart that feels that it's good news. So if I communicate the gospel, but I don't actually communicate the gospel, then it's not good news. But if I communicate even the correct content, but I communicate it from a heart that would like to put obligation on people, 
that would like to do it from a place of just any kind of unhealth, that sees it as a religious system that you should obey and belong to primarily, then it's not the good news, even if my content is correct. We know this from the scriptures because you speak out of your heart. And I don't know if you thought about this, but I don't like thinking about it, uh, especially for what I'm doing right now, that when you speak to somebody, the content of your words matters a lot. It's part of it. But equally important is the heart that you speak from. And in fact, what most people hear from you is your heart, not what you say, but where it's coming from. And so when we're sharing the good news, we should consider also our heart. Is the gospel, the message of the gospel in our heart? Or do we share it out of obligation? It must be shared from a place that comes deep down from in our heart. But also, to preach means that it must actually be spoken and offered and talked about. You probably know Romans, Romans 10, verse 14. Paul's talking about sharing the good news, which is what we talk about. And he says, how then can they call on the one? He's talking about what to do with the gospel. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard or heard about? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? So preaching, like in a coffee shop, doesn't look like preaching. It looks like offering the good news to somebody. It's an announcement. It's not even something that I have taken a hold of completely, maybe. It's just news that I'm sharing with them that I heard that hopefully has gone down into my heart. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, right at the beginning of his story, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Therefore, what? It's his whole message, his whole life summed up. Repent and believe, we'll talk about. Repent, it's hard to do this in order. Repent and believe the good news. Everything, in Je- everything Jesus is doing is an announcement of this message. So, just on continuing on, he said, Paul continues on and says... Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. The Greek word for which you received or received is, is para, okay, which means like with or for, para lambano, to take. Really what it means here, and this is, it's all important, but I just think that you, we skip over received, and we don't even know what to do with it. I, to, I'm just going to read you like definitions from this word. I take from receive from, or I take to, or I receive, admit, acknowledge, or take with me. This one is good. To take something by showing strong personal initiative. This is the proper response to the message. So if all we're doing deep down, first primarily, is offering a message, then you have to ask, what do you do with it? What's the proper response to hearing the message, whoever you are? And what Paul says is the the proper response is to do something called receive it. The message itself, which we'll see, is powerful. Maybe more powerful than we can understand in the moment or believe in the moment. But Paul thinks it's the most powerful thing in the world, this message, which is so weird that the, 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 the power of God, God would count on people to speak it out loud in all the ways that human beings are unable to do that well, scared to do it, unable to do it properly. But that's how God wants to transmit it, through people choosing to speak it, to show it, and to, to live it, and to speak it. 
And then what happens is, even though it contains power, Paul says elsewhere that the good news, the gospel, is the power of God to save people. He means it very specifically and practically. He literally thinks that people will be saved as they receive the message, both now and later. Paul's own life is an example of this, in which he talks at the end about someone being abnormally born, which we'll talk about if we have time, is that if you were to receive this message, take it to heart, take it with you, take a hold of it, that it would change your whole life. So to receive something is to, something that you've heard that's true of all, okay? The gospel is an announcement that's true, so John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not uh, perish but experience eternal life, whoever would believe in him. So the, the key for, for that, the key for this, is that just because the gospel is true and it's an announcement and the most powerful thing ever, it will have no effect in your life if it's not received. If it's not received the first time, which is what Paul's referring to here, or if it's not received ongoing, it will, it will cease to have power in your life if you're not receiving it. It's interesting uh, for me, I don't know if it's for you, that such a simple idea, like just receive something, can be really complicated to do. What does it mean to receive? I don't know if you ever asked that question. What does it really mean for you to receive it? How do you know when you received it? How do you know when you are receiving it? It's one of those things that's probably too simple for us to get. It's like when Jesus always brings it back when he's talking to his disciples and Pharisees, and he brings it back to saying, become like a child become like a child, is a reminder to move beyond this like difficulty, this hang-up we have to understand what he's talking about, where a child often doesn't have the blockage. But uh, when I was thinking about what it means to receive, I, I was reminded of this time that Angelic and I were trying to buy a car, and we, we used to never have a car, and we've, we've lived downtown the entire time we've been married, and then we had Kiminoto when Angelica was pregnant, and and was tired of walking and taking buses. And, and after Kiminoto, we got rid of Kiminoto, and then we didn't have a car for a while. And then it was just with a kid, it was like, yeah, it'd be much easier if we had a car, but we don't really need a car. So I had this whole hang-up of, we don't really have the money for a car, but I, even if I did, I don't want to really pay for a car because we don't use it that often. But because of that, in my, in my like, what I do, I, I like researched cars so much, like to find the best value of car, and I could never make a decision for like these months. Angelica is still like, I wish you'd get a car, and so I just can't bring, like, oh, I want to buy this used car. And so I felt one day, as I was praying about it, that I was just stressed about this in a way that I didn't need to be stressed about it, and I felt God impress upon me, stop looking for a car. Just stop looking. I was like, what is, what is that going to do? <laughs> I said, fine, I'll try it, because then nothing else has worked. And so I just, I just said, I made a decision in a moment. I, I switched what I was doing. This is repentance. I changed what I was doing. I was going this way, which was like researching cars madly, and I turned 180 degrees, and I said, I'm not going to look for a car anymore. God, if you'd like us to have a car, give us a car, because I give up. Two days later, somebody that used to be a part of Jubilee seemingly randomly came over. We had a discussion. They asked if they could leave their car in our spot because we had a parking spot we didn't use and left. And then the next day, less than 24 hours later, they sent me a message that said, we left your house and we felt like we, I couldn't shake that God was saying to us, give Michael and Angelica our car. <laughs> and I'm reading this message like, come on. And he's like, I don't even know if you want it or if you need it. I mean, it's, a, it's, an old, it's a used car. probably needs some work, but I don't know if you want it. But look, it's in your parking spot. I left the keys in your kitchen. And so it's yours if you want it. 
And I was like, what? <laughs> Things like that don't always happen, like, so, so clearly, you know? And so I remember just, I, yeah, I received cars. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. If you're new, it doesn't actually work like that, so. Um, but to, to bring it back to what it means to receive, it's nothing to do with, you know, re- receiving material goods, like, might be a part of what's going on, but to focus on that is to miss the whole message again. But what it meant for me to receive meant first I had to let go of my own way. Okay, it's fine if we buy a car. that God doesn't do things one way, but for that specific thing, what it meant for me, the pictures, I had to let go of what I was doing, which is repentance, this idea that to receive the good news, I must repent, which is like a, it's a turning from what you've been doing to something else, it's a surrendering, it's a letting go, so I had my hands were full of things until I opened them and left them open, I couldn't receive anything. Um, in addition to this, to actually receive the car, so I had to go and Angelica and I put it in our name and I had to become responsible for fixing it constantly and um, yeah, that whole thing. And uh, I had to take hold of it. I had to make it mine. I had to call it my own. I had to, you know what I mean? Like this is hard to explain, but I had to make it mine. I accepted it, put it in my name, put the insurance in my name, paid the fees and accepted that it was mine. This is what it is with the good news. The good news is a, you know, it's a terrible, but it's a car. But to receive it, you have to receive it. It's true anyway. It is what it is. Like the announcement, whether we believe it or not, what Paul's going to say is, it's historically true. It happened. It's an announcement and it's powerful. But if you'd like, if you'd like to have it, you have to actually have it. You have to actively receive it. And to do that, you're going to have to give up a lot of other things. But he's saying that if you would give up all the other things, you'll actually receive something that is more important and better than everything else. Okay. God does not promise anyone a car or money or a job or anything if you follow him, just, just as an asterisk to what I'm saying. Uh, Paul goes on. He says, which I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. The people he's writing to here in, in Corinth, which I mentioned a few minutes back, among many other messy things that are going on in their churches throughout the city, one thing, the thing that he's addressing now, is that some people are saying there's no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. Okay? They're not only talking about Jesus here. They're saying that whole idea that people rise from the dead, I don't know where that came from, but that is not true. Okay? It's not true. Therefore, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They came up with all kinds of creative ways to explain what had happened, but that's what they were saying. So what Paul's saying here when he says, on which you have taken your stand. So the gospel is something that we must receive, and then of which we take a stand on it. Some of us have received it and have stopped. That's an issue. Some of us have never received it. That's the first step. Some of us have received it, are receiving it, but we're shy to take a stand on it. What he means here is specifically the message he spoke to them. This is very specific, but try to get this. The message that he spoke to them, the content of it, what he said, which he's going to say again in a second. He says, that message, the specific thing I said to you, you took a stand on that. You said that is the message. What's going on is that some people are taking that message and they've tweaked it a bit. They've changed it. And they say, you can have the message, believe the message, but this whole part about Jesus rising from the dead, this part doesn't need to fit into it. Okay? And he's saying, you took a stand on the message I spoke to you. It was important what I said. 
And he says, you took a stand on that. So when everybody else started saying, no, the resurrection didn't happen, you took a stand on what I said. So remember that. Remember the message I said to you. That's the one you took a stand on. It also means something else, though. It can mean something else. And he's saying, you took a stand on the message I said, not just against others who are changing it, but against the whole world and all the other messages that people give. So there's lots of ways to live. There's lots of stories to live. Everyone's actually looking for salvation, which we'll see in a second. Everybody has different ways of explaining what salvation is and how we find it and how we get it. And Paul says, in the midst of that, you've taken a life stand on this one message. It's a big deal. You've, stand, you've you staked your whole life on this claim that I shared with you. So he thinks it's a good thing. But he's thinking in a world where there's many gods to pursue, you've chosen to pursue the God that's revealed in the specific message I spoke to you. So the question here is just for anybody, have we actually taken a stand on it? To take a stand on it is, is to, for example, is to be baptized if you've not been baptized. This is a way to take a stand on it. To, to internally decide, this is my story, and I'm not going to believe other stories anymore. He goes on. By this gospel, you are saved. Literally, it means to be saved or to be healed. And literally, in the Greek, it means you're in the process of being saved. By this gospel, you are being saved. Ongoing. And uh, I'll just read you a little quote here as we speed up. The word saved, of course, implies that you are being rescued from something. Many Christians use the word saved as a term of go- for going to heaven, but for Paul, being saved means being rescued from becoming dead. Salvation ultimately means here salvation from death. What causes death is when people give their hearts and their lives to things which are not God, because God is the only source of life. And this is how we're all actually looking for salvation. Is everybody is lo- they don't use the word death, most of them, although, although that is a thing. People realize that death is bad, and so there's a growing movement to try to eradicate death, which is probably a good thing, but it shows that we're looking for salvation. I can look for salvation in my life by needing a better job. Okay, the root of the better job is fine, but the root of the better job of more money might be more security. It's because for me, salvation is having, having all my bases covered, not being uh, in danger of ever being in need. This is a form of salvation. Uh, it all stems from our brokenness. Another form of salvation would, would be that, that um, I need a certain position or I need a certain group of friends or I need a certain of this because I need to be significant. And for me to be acknowledged as significant, seen as significant by myself and by other people is when I will have arrived. The whole idea of arriving somewhere is a search for salvation. Okay, so he's saying by this message you're actually saved and in no other message are you offered salvation. But then he does this. Why would he do this? He says, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. He has a qualifier. You are being saved. If you believe the message, you're being saved as long as if you believe you hold it. This is like receiving it, okay? Remember, take hold of something. If you Hold, firmly receive it. <laughs> you hold it firmly. You receive it and you don't let go to the word that I preach to you. Again, Paul is saying something very specific here. What I preach to you, you have to hold firmly to that, not to something else. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Now, later on in this passage, Paul starts really talking about this whole resurrection thing and he says, um, he says, um, 
But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What does he say after this? Yeah. Yeah, all the, all the way to the end. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul's saying one thing here. He's saying, number one, if what I said to you is not true, then you're wasting your life. If Jesus, and this is just one point. That's why the points matter. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and nothing else I said matters. If Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead, nothing else matters. You should be pitied for wasting the only thing you had. Because to, to, to coming is death, and death is an end. However, if what he said is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, but you have, to, you have believed it at first, you've surrendered your life, you've done the hard work of receiving, and then you decide later, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Paul wants to say, whatever our theology wants to do with this, Paul wants to say, you've believed it in vain. All the things you do believe are in vain. Because without this point, none of it has power anymore. This is true of anybody, no matter how much Christian faith we have. So, if I believe in God but I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that my faith in God is in vain. It's useless. It doesn't actually mean anything. If I believe in the power of prayer, but I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, my belief means nothing. If I believe in the, that human beings have great potential to overcome adversity and evil in the world, if I believe that education can solve things and working for justice can solve things, but at the same time, he wants to say, I don't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. He says, all that other belief I have is in vain. I, of all people, should be pitied. See, even the opposite side. If I believe all these things, but I don't believe this. Uh, when I was reflecting on this idea, though, of believing in vain, I think there's a third way of reading this. Just maybe it's for me, but I wonder if sometimes we have stopped holding firmly to the message. We've loosened up a bit. <laughs> Because we fear that we've believed in vain. Maybe not that we think Jesus rose from the dead or he literally didn't rise from the dead and we have doubts, sure, but maybe there's a doubt. I know for me there is at times that maybe it is all in vain. And because I fear that it's in vain, I don't hold so firmly anymore. That I'm scared that I've wasted my life. That the call to surrender everything and follow me and you'll receive an abundant life. That what if it's wrong? And because of a fear of it being in vain, I stop believing, actually. Which is actually what Paul says, it's a warning, is then you're believing in vain. When your faith begins to lessen and you start doubting certain things, it's at that point that all of your other faith is in vain. Paul would probably want to say, although it's dangerous to say, is if you want to give up one point, just give it all up. Henry Nouwen wrote, sometimes we experience a terrible dryness in our spiritual life. We feel no desire to pray don't experience God's presence, get bored with worship services, and even think that everything we ever believed about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is little more than a childhood fairy tale. At that point and then, it's important to realize that most of these feelings and thoughts are just feelings and thoughts. It is a great grace to be able to experience God's presence in our feelings and thoughts, but when we don't, it does not mean that God is absent or that what's historically true is no longer true. It often means that God is calling us to a greater faithfulness. And it's precisely in times of spiritual dryness that we must hold on to our spiritual discipline, that is, seek after God, so that we can grow in a new intimacy with God. For what I received, Paul says, I passed on to you. I'm going to 
do this part really quickly. For what Paul received, he passed on. We talk a lot about receiving and responding. It doesn't come from nowhere. It's all over the place, including right here. For what I received, I passed on to you. Paul did not say, you know, what I was taught in school, I came here and taught. What I heard once, I'm going to share it with you. He says, what I have taken a hold of, what I have taken all the initiative within myself to receive, what I have given up everything for and received, that's the thing I'm giving you. That's the going into the heart thing. So evangelism comes from evangelism, comes from this word, uan, gelion, sharing good news, like preaching. And so to do evangelism means that you're passing something on that you possess. And so if you want to do that, share good news, not a caricature of evangelism, but sharing good, authentic good news with somebody, then you should focus on receiving it. And if you receive it, you will actually pass it on. And there's no such thing as receiving it and not passing it on so you know it's not happening. But when you truly receive it, you will pass it on. If you can't pass it on, you should receive it. And then Paul says, as of first importance. So for what I received, I passed on to you as of primary importance. First things first, he's saying. He's not saying there's nothing else you should believe. He's not saying there's nothing else that's important. He's saying, this is primary How do I share the good news with somebody? How do I know what to say? He's saying, don't forget this. And more importantly, if you forget it, nothing else you say will matter. That Christ, okay? So he starts like this. The message, it's not the whole message, okay? It's the primary center of the message. And it begins with this phrase. You don't have to say it exactly like this, although that's fine. That Christ, the word Christ means Messiah. And what he's saying here is Jesus the, the man in the first century who everybody known and who everybody knew is actually this. He's actually the Messiah, the one that God promised that would redeem and heal everything. So it's like a savior. So we're all looking for a savior. But the first things first, Jesus is that savior. He is the thing, not a job, not money, not anything else, not a dream in my life, nothing. Not, not money, not possessions, not, not even peace, nothing. Jesus is the only one that saves Believe it. I mean, whether we believe it or not, it's about getting back to the actual message. For Christ died. So Paul says his death, which was not questioned as much in that day, as it can be questioned today, which is so silly. It's a, it's a historical fact that Christ died by public execution at the hands of an empire uh, for crimes that he supposedly committed um, in front of people. This, he says, is not to be doubted, number one. It's not to be doubted that happened. So the message is that a man in the first century died on a Roman cross. And he died on a Roman cross, and what Paul wants to say is, the heart of the gospel is, why did he do it? What does it mean? You have to take it for granted that it happened. The question is, what does it mean? And I actually want to say for a second before we talk about what it means, is that you have to decide what it means. That's part of receiving. You need to decide for yourself, because this is true of all people. The message is for all people. But you need to decide what it means for you. This is part of receiving, is appropriating it. Okay, hopefully you decide something that's correct, but, but it has to still be personal, okay? His death on a cross, Jesus talked about it, Paul talked about it, is, is a substitution is a, is, a, is a dying in place of someone else. Now, there's things called, which we won't talk about because we don't have time, atonement theories, 
which are what we do with this. Well, what does it mean that Jesus died? And there's, there's actually, the truth is found in a multi- multiplicity of theories. It's complicated. And we see them all over scripture that Jesus is, Jesus is taking our place, absorbing the wrath that we should receive because sin is on us and God's wrath is directed towards sin and we're covered with it. If we want God to be just, this is an important point, if we want God to be just and heal injustice, then we have to recognize the fact that we're all guilty of injustice. And so if we would like God to get rid of all injustice, we must accept that he will get rid of us as well. Jesus himself takes on this justice of God. Not against specific people out of a hatred for people. God loved, God so loved the world that he chose not to let his justice consume people covered in sin. But he himself became a person who would take on sin and absorb justice upon himself. This is one, for example. Another one is the enemy has uh, power over you if you are not reconciled to Jesus. This is a story that the enemy has power over all of us. He's our father, the scriptures say, as weird as that might sound. And that what Jesus does is he says, forget it, let them go, and I'll take their place. You know, I will be locked up instead of them. And the way the early Christians saw this, and this is one of their favorite ways of thinking about it, is that Jesus kind of surprises the enemy by saying, I'll, I'll go into you know, the dungeon all the way to the point of death, which is the result of sin. Death is the, is the prime result of sin. I'll even be dead, for, I'll even die for it. And the enemy's happy because, oh, God died for it. Fantastic. I have taken over finally, right? The, the story of the enemy is a story of wanting to, because of pride, taking over God. So he thinks in the de- on the, Jesus on the cross is finally the, f- the end of the story for the enemy. It's finally, God is dead and I am in control. Uh, then Jesus surprises him. The early Christians thought about it like, like, gotcha, and he rises from the dead, of which he destroyed death, the one thing the enemy had, including himself. And so this is another one. They all fit together. But C.S. Lewis writes this that I just want to leave you with when you think about the death of Jesus. Now, before I became a Christian, this is C.S. Lewis talking. Now, before I became a Christian, I was under the impression that the first thing Christians had to believe was one particular theory as to what the point of this dying, Jesus dying was. According to that theory, God wanted to punish men for having deserted and joined the great rebellion. But Christ volunteered to be punished instead, and so God let us off the hook. Now I admit that even this theory does not seem quite so immoral and silly as it used to. It is part, somewhat part of the story. But that is not the point I want to make. What I came to see later on was that neither this theory nor any other theory is Christianity. The central belief is this. You don't want to miss this because I'm just going to give you the answer. <laughs> the central belief of Christianity, the central thing, is belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Very simple. Obviously, there's lots more things to say, but this is what you're communicating to yourself. Theories as to how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it works. Jesus says in John chapter 10, no one takes it from me. He's talking about his life, okay? No one takes my life from me. I love Jesus. He's so strong. In the middle of a public execution, like literally, he's literally dying on a cross, okay? Like we sometimes separate what's actually happening. He's literally about to be executed. And what does he say? 
I just want to make sure we're clear here. No one's taking my life from me here. I lay it down on my own accord, okay? So in our language, you're not actually killing me here. I'm choosing to allow you to kill me. I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. He's even telling them what's going to happen, but they don't get it. This command I receive from my father, the command to lay down my life and then raise it up again, I receive from my father. Jesus is very good at obeying. It's not an easy command. I don't know what command you're wrestling with, but that one's not very easy. For our sins. Jesus died for our sins. The word sin literally means this. We often talk about it like missing the mark, of which it does mean that. So sin is a, a perpetual state that I cannot get out of, cannot get away from it, in which every time I try to hit the bullseye of a target, I can't. It's constant and complete failure. Even my good things are actually failure. This is sin, being under the curse of sin. He says all human beings are like this. It also means this, literally. Literally what the Greek word means is to not have a share in something. Okay? To not have a part in something. What is he referring to? Is, what is, God has no sin, right? So God is not sin. God can never have a part of sin. Human beings can never have a part of God. Can never have a part of life. Can never have any of it. So what it says is that he died for our sins, is that he died for, number one, this state that we are in of which we can never take part in the life of God. No human being can know God, no matter how much yoga we do or anything else. Like, we can't know him. We can't tap in. None of it. That's the message of Jesus. See, it's counter to some of the common messages we hear. We can't do it. None of those things are bad. They don't work. Not at that level. Not for that kind of thing. The kind of tap into God, know God, have a relationship with him, experience life, everlasting transformation, that can only come, that can never come when we're under this thing called sin. I know I, I, know I have sin because I, make, I do sins. Okay? I know that I'm, I'm still uh, under the pressure of this to an extent because I still lash out. I still do this. I still do that. These are specific sins of a state that I am in. So when it says that Jesus died for our sins, number one means that God broke every specific thing in my life. He absorbed the justice due him. If we don't think sin is a big deal either, which is common not to, then we haven't really understood it. It's not just sin in terms of moral obligations that we failed to keep that we have talked about a lot in Christianity. But it is not less than that either. It is that. But sin is bigger than that. And if we don't think sin's a big deal, it's because we haven't woken up to it yet. It's kind of like a warning there, too, that often we come to believe that sin's a big deal when we have a wake-up call, you know? We fail big. Oh, yeah, maybe it was a big deal, and I do need to be saved. It's better to wake up before the wake-up call, okay? It's popular to think it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal. If you don't think it's a big deal for some issues, for sure you think it's a big deal for other issues. It's a big, big deal. Jesus also destroyed sin as a systemic force in the world. The reason some people are hungry and some people don't have money is partly because other people have all of it and they don't share it. The reason people do that is because they're bad people. Okay? This is actually the message. But the reason they are, the reason we all are, the reason we all make decisions like that is because we're under a system called sin. We're reacting to it. We're living in reaction to it. Even our best things are often motivated not by love, but by something else. And the reason that they're motivated by those things is because our heart is dead because it's living in a system of sin. So Jesus died for that stuff. 
Okay, so Jesus died for it. He took sin into a grave, just as a picture. He took sin into a grave and died with it and covered sin up with a big, a big circle stone. That's what happened. <laughs> and in there, it died. Okay, so when the stone rolled away, Jesus came out and, and sin did not exist anymore. In the, in, the, in the scripture, sin is like this. Now it's like this, this shadow figment that doesn't actually exist that the enemy is still trying to use and hold people to. But for th- that person that has believed and trusted in Jesus, sin does not exist. doesn't mean that you won't do it. At some point, you won't anymore. But it means that it doesn't actually exist. So everything you're doing is actually a lie. You're not actually under its power. This is why Paul's always trying to remind of this. That Jesus was buried on the third day. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I don't have time to talk about this, but it's not specifically, he died according to our, he died for our sins according to the scriptures, like it says in Isaiah 53. This is true. It says that. He means the whole story of the scriptures is about this. In accord, in agreement with everything that's been written before, Jesus did this, okay? That he was buried. Jesus being in very nature God died. Death is a part of the thing called sin, okay? Death itself. Death has no part in God. God has no part in death. And God chose to take part. This is the love of God. God chose to take part in the worst aspect of sin, its consequence. Even though he didn't commit the crime, he accepted the consequence. Even though he didn't share in the nature of what we have, he accepted the natural result of that nature that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, the other two might be just as important for us today as this one. For Paul, this is what he's getting to. He was buried and, on the th- and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He's reminding them, according to the scriptures, what's happened all before, Jesus had to rise, he did rise. It's, that's the good news part, actually. The good news part is wrapped up in this. Three days later, Jesus bodily rose from the dead, he, meaning he conquered sin and death. Meaning, why is it good news for me? Why does that matter to me? Why does it matter that he died and rose again? It's because without that, apparently, my best is nothing. My best is coming to an end shortly. Okay? Literally. With this, it means that there's actually another reality that has opened up. And I can experience life there. I can know God there. I can find out who I really am there. I can love other people well there. And I can experience, like I talked about earlier, salvation in terms of receiving significance. That I am more significant than I ever actually thought. Really. The problem is I don't know how much I am. And I'm secure more than I ever actually knew. But I can only find those things really fully and truly if I enter into this new reality that only exists because, although that sounds spiritual, it's rooted in historical fact. Jesus rose from the dead, therefore it means something. And what does it mean that the guy rose from the dead? God beat evil. He beat suffering. He beat sin. He beat brokenness, failure, shame, loneliness, abuse, misunderstanding, war, pain, death. All these things. That's what the gospel means. What it means that he died and rose from the dead is that those things are conquered. So, so what does that mean then? What do we do with it? By receiving the message, we can live in its reality. You guys can come forward. We can live in its reality. I'm going to end here with the last chunk. Okay. He raised on the third day according to the scriptures and then he appeared. This is Peter, by the way. This is his other name. Cephas. Cephas. Some will say, appeared to Peter. 
you see what Paul's doing here is Paul, Paul's, Paul's kind of putting himself out there, okay? I'm telling you he rose from the dead. You want me to prove it to you? He appeared to Peter. You don't care what Peter said? He appeared to the 12. You don't care what the 12 said? After that, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still living. You see what he's doing? It's like an argument. He's saying, ask them. They're still alive. I'm putting my reputation on the line here. 500 different people, and everyone's agreeing they saw him? They're not even the big guys, you know, not even the 12, not even Peter, but all these other people saw him. They all have the same story. Go ask them. So that's why he says, some are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is Paul's way of saying they died. And the reason that he chooses to say this is because he's telling them the gospel again. They did die, but in fact what has happened is they've just, they're just sleeping. Like, come on, man, they're dead. <laughs> no, they're sleeping. Because at one point, Jesus will return and will waken them. Okay? He will rise them again, just like he did. And at that point, they will never die again. And then he says, just to make it clear, and then he appeared to James, by the way, too. And then to all the apostles, who are they? Well, he's already mentioned the 12. He also mentioned Peter. He mentioned the 500. He mentions James. There's other apostles, apparently, who are going out and send, bringing the good news that he's talking about. And last of all, he appeared to me, too as to one abnormally born. You know, this is fun just because it's fun. <laughs> the, the word here for abnormally born, if you like this image, you might not, and I'm sorry, but that's what it is. The, the word image is of uh, a woman that is pregnant but has, has to undergo a C-section when it's not time. And the baby, as if the baby's ever ready to, to be born, probably not, but what the word image means is it's like the, the baby is ripped from the mother's body and the light just pierces the eyes. It wasn't the right time. And this is Paul trying to tell his own story. On the road to Damascus, Paul's on a, on a horse, right? And so there's a flash of light, and he falls to the ground, and Jesus is basically like shows him who's boss, because he thinks he is. And he tells him, it's all true. The complete opposite of what you've been living is true. And Paul says, that moment to me was like an abnormal birth. I wasn't ready, but it happened anyway. I wasn't ready, but, but he, 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 he ripped me out of the place that I was hiding. And so what Paul is saying here is he begins to tell his own story. And I'm not going to read it, but after this, Paul, Paul talks about how, uh, how he came to faith, basically. And it matters a lot because he's doing something. Because if we go back to the beginning, which will end, I skipped over one word. I skipped over a few, but one word that really matters now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. Yeah, if we couldn't see it before, it's, boom, it's right there. I was actually going to make it so that remind was the only word that you could see, but I decided not to. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Paul's got this thing off to the side where he wants to tell us that the resurrection matters, okay? That it doesn't matter. And if we don't have that, we don't have anything. But what Paul's really doing here is he's reminding people about the message, we need to be reminded. This is kind of the, the whole point of the message is if there's one thing we need always is to be reminded of the gospel message, reminded of the good news. We don't, we, we, we enter the kingdom through the good news. We walk in the kingdom through the good news. We finish life through the good news. There's all kinds of other things we do, but if we don't have this in our heart, then if we don't receive it, then all the Christian stuff is really silly. Because it is. It's an add-on. It's, it's an add-on to this thing. And so I want to give a moment here, although we're, we're already a bit late, but I just want to give a few minutes here for you to reflect on what does it mean for me today to receive it? 
take a stand on it. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.